Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a good afternoon in Cape Town, South Africa, where Sanusha Naidu is joining us again on the show. Sanusha, if you're not familiar with her work, is a research associate in the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria, and she's also working as a project manager at uh, Fahomu, and uh, which is the uh, Pan African Network for Social Justice, uh, very social justice organization. So, thank you so much for being back on the show again, Sanusha. Thanks for being, and, and I am enjoying myself here. Oh, it's fantastic! It's now in our previous podcast, we've talked to you a little bit about the emergence of China in great power diplomacy. Well, that really came to light uh, in in the past few weeks here when Xi Jinping, the president of China, he held a very important kind of gathering. And it was a very private gathering, but obviously Xinhua, the Chinese news agency, reported on it in a very kind of uh, you know, official way, and he held and convened the Central Conference on Work Relating to the to Foreign Affairs, which is the Communist Party's highest level meeting on foreign relations. So he brought back diplomats from all over the world. He had the standing uh, the, the standing members of the Standing Committee, which is basically the the most senior officials in the Chinese government. And there he came out and really announced what we're starting to understand as an official break with the past on Chinese foreign policy. Now, up until now, for the past 20 years or so, uh, Deng Xiaoping, the former paramount leader, he had this idea of the, quote, hide and bide, this kind of slow type of evolution of Chinese foreign policy. Don't upset the status quo, kind of sit in the, fo- in, in the background. And then there was Hu Jintao, who kind of really promoted this concept of peaceful rise. Well, we're out of that phase now. And let me give you a quote just to set up our discussion with Sanushi here to kind of talk about the emergence of China's great power diplomacy. Quote, this is from Xi Jinping. China must have big country diplomacy with Chinese characteristics and a distinctive Chinese style, Chinese manner, and Chinese attitude. Now, keep this in mind when you think about this one news article that was out on the, the South China Morning Post that says that basically a new law is now being considered that would authorize the Chinese military to fight terrorists abroad, obviously with the consent of the countries where they're being deployed to. And so all of these types of things are coming out at the same time. And really in the context of this past year, and I'll just kind of check a couple key points and then I want to get Sanusha's kind of take on this. We've seen a more assertive China in the South China Sea. We've seen a more assertive China really bending its non-interference doctrine in South Sudan. We've seen a more assertive China now in, in trying to reframe the international finance order with the emergence of the BRICS Bank, the emergence of the Asian Infrastructure Bank. And so again, some may call it aggressive, some may call it ambitious, but at the end of the day, something big is happening here. So Sanusha, from your vantage point as a student of the emerging powers in Africa, Tell me when you see this trend and when you heard this speech from Xi Jinping or at least read the comments from it, what are your, what's your reaction? What are your thoughts on this? My first reaction, Eric, was that China is putting its big pants on and taking on the world. Uh, I think to a large extent you're right. When we look at China, South Africa, when we look at foreign policy, not just of China, but I think we're seeing a trend also with India, if I have to compare, is that suddenly they're becoming more proactive in their foreign policy perspective. They're putting out their 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 their, their intentions, 
they show, uh, China and, and I think India as well. But China definitely with this speech, I think what President Xi Jinping has done is that he's not just announced China, but he's announced China's role in international uh, relations and what, what, what it sees as its role as diplomacy with Chinese characteristics. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of feeling of 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 of, of basically saying to oneself, I've been able to achieve the BRICS Bank. I've put into motion the Af- Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, uh, I'm now talking about the the way in which uh, I've responded to issues of terrorism. I'm now creating different avenues. So in other words, where for a long time there were criticism level that China for not taking on a global role, we're seeing this coming out maybe very nuanced, but definitely the messaging is there. Sonisha, how do you think um, Africa should be reacting to this? I mean, Africa hasn't been explicitly mentioned very much in the reporting about the speech so far. I mean, people have mostly been focusing on both the U.S. and then also China's China's relations with its neighbors in in um, East Asia. Um, but you know, kind of, I was wondering, like, like how how might this change China's conduct in Africa? Well, I think to to some extent, you know, there's the, the the point about South Sudan and what China did there, where it went beyond just the kind of um, uh, non-interference approach, but it actually got involved and it engaged with the opposition. I think it's an indication of how China is also learning what it needs to be doing in Africa. I and mean, I think we've always made this point: is that you cannot retain a level of non-interference in a, in, a, in a country or a continent where you have strategic interests. And I think China has demonstrated that with its regional neighborhood in the Asia-Pacific. But more importantly as well, I think it's demonstrated it as in, in the case of Africa in response to the Ebola crisis. But for Africa, I think there's a point here that, I, that needs to be made, and that is how does the African Union and how does relevant African countries respond to the speech. What I don't see in Africa is a response or or, or, an, or, or a kind of disaggregation of what does the speech mean for us and how do we then nuance, craft and develop uh, a kind of engagement, not necessarily an Africa policy on China, but definitely a broad engagement of how we want to see things going. I think what's happening in Africa is that different countries are responding differently to China. And that that doesn't necessarily play uh, into a a more broader strategy for Africa, but it does actually give some sense of what China would like to see happening in terms of a broad narrative. For me, I think personally, is what we need to do is we need to dissect this the speech as analysts and students of international politics and ask ourselves where does Africa fit in this? Because quite rightly so, the speech very of uh, very uh, the, the the main kind of headline news that one could extract from the speech was that it was Asia Pacific and the U.S. Those were the two areas that that became key featured geogra- geographical spaces that, that that the president made that the president referred to. Where does Africa fit? Does Africa still have that level of, 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 of strategic uh, orientation in China's foreign policy? And I think to, to some extent, it's our responsibility as Africans to be able to disaggregate, to distill and extract that and ask ourselves, we're coming up for major events, not just in the Asia Pacific, but we're coming up for FOCAC next year. How does this then change? Does this, does this speech have an impact on what we're going to see as some of the dynamics that unfold in the run-up to the, the China-Africa Forum? and the way in which China is going to be working with Africa 
engaging with Africa and basically responding to Africa? Well, I mean, I have a pretty short answer to why Africa wasn't mentioned, you know, in the speech is because geopolitically, I mean, in the broader scheme of things, Africa is not that significant for China right now. When you compare to its massive foreign policy challenges that it faces with Japan, with the Koreas, certainly with the United States, uh, even with Russia. I mean, so geopolitically, Africa may be an emerging presence for, for China, but it's really not in the, the aid list of their top foreign policy priorities, in, in, my, in my assessment. And that's why I wouldn't think that it's there. But at that said, I'm wondering if you think that Xi Jinping, either intentionally or just by coincidence, is taking advantage of... I don't, I'm, I don't want to say the decline of America, because that always ruffles feathers, but that's not it. But relatively speaking, the United States is not as influential and effective in its foreign policy than it was, say, during the Cold War. And now, and we've talked about this before, there is a marketplace for political ideas that, you know, Africans are open to now taking in ideas from Indians and investments from Chinese, from Brazilians, from Russians, from all the different great powers and emerging powers that are coming in. There is at least some room for competition here. And so I guess, how much are we seeing here a, a vacuum of a hyperpower that China is being able to take advantage of and step into to fill the void in places like Africa? Yeah, I think you're right, Eric. I think it's it, it, it's an interesting point you make, and I think you on the first point about whether about where does Africa fit in the hierarchy of geostrategic interests for China, you could make the same argument even for 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 other countries like India, and of course uh, even for for the U.S. as well. Despite the U.S. Africa Leadership Summit last year as a kind of revitalization of of relations, uh, I think where for for me personally, I think the question is really around how does Africa navigate these partnerships. And, and more importantly, how does it actually make sure that these strategic partnerships that of which China is one of the 21 strategic partnerships that are signed under the AU, how do they actually make those work for themselves? I think to a large extent, um, there's a lot of option that now exists in Africa for African co countries to be able to also also open up their marketplace of ideas. So if they want to create a much more a, 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 a buffet of, 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 of ideas for themselves and engagements, then they have that. I mean, they just don't have China. What I would like to see is how we think beyond just the big politics as well. How do we think beyond China? Because right now China is occupying a space and there's a lot of questions around this kind of, of, of uh, superpower rivalry, if one wants to call it that, but the kind of intentions that are, that, are, that, are, that are unfolding. But beyond China as well, there are a number of other actors that are there who may, may not necessarily receive the same attention that China does, but nevertheless are having a dramatic impact on Africa. How are we responding to those as well? Kobus, let me put the question to you here. Um, one of the key tenets of, of Xi Jinping's agenda is something that he calls the Chinese dream. And this is a very optimistic message. Now, the Chinese dream is largely designed for a domestic Chinese audience. And that is to say that the Chinese dream is very similar to the American dream, which is to kind of advance materially, advance spiritually, kind of have a stronger, healthier society. Okay? Fine. But at the same time, it does seem like it might present uh, an opportunity to promote this vision and this idea to an African audience, much like the American dream was something that was sold internationally as part of the American promise here. And I guess, you know, the same question that I put to Sanusha here is, what is the soil like in Africa in terms of being able to respond? And we can even just speak in South Africa, I mean, in terms of how receptive people are now 
to, say, the, the American and the Chinese visions for the future? For me, I think it's really important to to distinguish between two things. In the first place, to distinguish between China's emotional impact as a new example of development or a new as a as a Chinese dream, and to which extent, and on the other side, China's role as a challenger to American hegemony. Um, and I think those two might have slightly different trajectories in Africa, um, because I, you know, kind of China stepping into a space where American and European hegemony is really resented in Africa. Um, and so I think China's role as, as a challenger to America had packs a big punch in, in, in Africa emotionally, but it doesn't necessarily then translate into direct support for, the, for concepts like the Chinese dream. Um, it's interesting to see that the Chinese government has also yeah, has, has, has extended that meme to include an African dream, which as a coining was essentially kind of taken over from some of um, some of uh, you know, South Africa's ex- former president Thabo Mbeki's, um, you know, kind of neo, kind of neoliberal pan-Africanism. You know, or you know, kind of I'm, I'm fast and loose with, with terms here, but you know, it's, it's kind of some of his, his attempts to uh, what, what he called the African Renaissance in um, you know in the mid 2000s. And there is a connection there, and this this idea that Africa is itself also advancing towards an African dream in parallel to the Chinese dream. It's difficult for me to say to which ex- like to which extent that that has any kind of real popular support in Africa. I think the other, the what carries more popular support is this idea that China is now a new kind of player that is going to disrupt these hegemonies that Africa has been suffering from over the last hundred years. That I think still carries the, the that kind of those kind of historical resentments actually carry more power. Um, Sanusha, I don't know if you if you agree with that. I agree with you, Provost. I think I think you basically. I mean, I think one of the things that China is afraid of is going down the same path as de- other developed partners have done in Africa, uh, and I think there's there's a bit of a hesitancy to be able to also say that we are different from these actors. So 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 the African dream has to be cautious. It has to be based and built around, I think, this marketplace of you being able to control your own destiny and define your own future. Uh, and I think that's the bit of the the, the, the dream that I, I would see as China being hesitant to try and put out as a kind of framework and everybody can follow this in terms of how we do it. I think what happens at the practical level is that uh, there's interpretations of the dream to say, well, if China has gone down this path, we also can follow this industrial development program, etc. The Chinese are hesitant, in my opinion, because if it goes wrong, then they don't want to be, be at, the, at, the, at, at the tail end of, 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 the, of the criticism. And I think that is what they've learned very quickly in Africa, is understanding how resentment has now turned into some really, really tense situations with actors like the EU and America. Uh, and, and, and the tensions have actually become palpable in a way in which they've, they've led to very, very, very... Uh, um, tenuous relations. You know, we've seen this in the EU-Africa summit, uh, where the fact that there was the sanctions against Zimbabwe for the and, and against Mugabe for a long time had actually turned uh, Africans, African governments against the EU. And then we saw it with the economic partnership agreement. So I think the Chinese are cautious in that way because they don't want to see this becoming as a recipe for disaster. On the one hand, they have something to sell to the rest of the world, the great development story and the, Ameri- the Chinese dream of, of whatever. But they also have to deal with some of the, the inequities of, this, of the Chinese dream in their 
own domestic setting. They have to deal with the inequality, have to deal with the corruption, which I think is they, they, they're cautious. On, on another issue, I think the attraction between the Chinese dream and maybe the American dream is that I think it's at the political elite level uh, uh, because I do think that the attraction becomes quite uh, a, a favorable process where e economic and political elites want to drive this, this, this pull out this dream and say, oh, the Chinese have done it, we can do it. The caution, I would say, is coming from the grassroots, from what I can see from the grassroots, where I think people are still hanging on to the, 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 the global north and the Western, the Western view of, of the world. And so there's a hesitancy as well to also accept China into the grassroots. And you see those tensions playing itself out in a number of different ways. Uh, you see a lot of Chinese migration of, 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 um, of families and shopkeepers coming into the, the African market. But there's tensions again. Uh, similarly, you find that, in my opinion, those tensions as well from civil society. How does civil society portray the the China the Chinese footprint in Africa you know I think part of that is also defined by funding funding who funds you and what you're trying to achieve with that funding uh, until such time we're going to see Chinese philanthropy increase in Africa we're going to end up with these different dichotomies of the narrative I wouldn't hold your breath about Chinese philanthropy only in because it's just really not kind of part of the culture the same way that is in the West and so this was this has come under a, a you know numerous evaluations and, and, and discussions in terms of why don't wealthy Chinese billionaires give the same way that, say, Bill Gates does. And it's just, it's a different culture, and it's not kind of what their values are in that sense. But let me, let me just kind of talk about the pace of things. So on the one hand, a lot of us who kind of follow Chinese foreign policy and Xi Jinping's kind of remarks on the topic we're a little bit surprised that, well, it's taken him so long to articulate this because, as Ariel Sharon, the, the former prime minister of Israel, said, there are facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground, for those of us who live in Asia, is that Chinese naval warships now, we're not talking Coast Guard, we're talking the PLA Navy, are now being seen off the coast of Malaysia. We've had interactions, hostile interactions, in the South China Sea with the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands. It's been a very much more aggressive Chinese military posture here in Asia. In Africa, just the past week, they're floating the idea of a Navy base in Namibia. We've got a, the largest deployment of combat troops in Africa by the Chinese and as part of a UN peacekeeping mission in South Sudan. There's troops in Mali. The, just where you are in Cape Town, about six months ago, uh, China's most sophisticated naval uh, task force group made a visit, a port of call. And we're seeing the, the real presence of the Chinese military and Chinese power being reflected in ways that we've never seen before. Uh, economically, the Chinese are throwing their weight around. And so in some ways, Xi's comments are lagging behind the facts on the ground. And I guess I'm curious to hear your perception of what are the realities that we're seeing today in terms of the expression of this more aggressive Chinese foreign policy versus the rhetoric and, and how those two may or may not be in sync. Yeah, I think you're right. I think somehow the, the, the policy rhetoric seems to be following the, the, foot, the footprint on the ground, uh, and it's about two steps behind. Uh, are you, you, you're quite right. I think we, we're seeing a very aggressive China hap, uh, emerging, not just in Asia-Pacific, but coming into the, into the Gulf of Guinea, as well as around uh, the, the, the Indian Ocean Rim. And I think that's going to be very important. I think what's going to be interesting as well is 
one of the points that Quibus raised about South Africa is how does this then raise different trajectories for South Africa's naval capacity and maritime security capacity? Because one of the interesting things for me is that if you have a if you have China that's going to be building up your naval and maritime security capacity in a in a country like Namibia, South Africa is no longer this the 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 the, the major ma uh, naval power or naval actor in the continent. Uh, it raises different dynamics around geostrategic security interests um, in that context. But, but more importantly, I think it raises another dimension, and that is, how does this fit in with the IPSA maritime security exercise that we see happening uh, continuously and just happened about three weeks ago between the three naval, uh, the three naval uh, uh, sectors of India, Brazil, South Africa on the coast of, uh, on the Indian Ocean coast. So to a large extent, I think there's a number of you could you could argue there's a number of different strands of implication that we're going to see coming out of this maritime security and a more aggressive China in terms of security dynamics and their dimension, uh, and it's going to be creating different different trajectories both in Africa on the coast of Africa and especially in our in our surrounding waters. One of the points that, that you mentioned before is that obviously China isn't the only the only big power, the only emerging power in, in, in Africa. Um, there are obviously the, the established ones like the US and Europe and then also, you know, kind of other actors starting to emerge. Do you, um, how do I ask this? Um, you know, one of the problems in Africa, um, I think is this, you know, is it's dual situation where it's both frequently very underdeveloped and a kind of an avant-garde space for new new kind of paramilitary movements um you know kind of we've seen Boko Haram we've seen Al-Shabaab all of these different these different terrorist movements emerging in, in different African spaces um and then frequently met with a response a kind of interventionist response coming from from various foreign actors um do you see Africa in in the next 10 20 years becoming more of this kind of uh, a kind of a stage for this kind of, you know, uh, stage for various kind of international armies or armed presences in the way that, that a country like Djibouti is already becoming? Um, it's difficult because I think much of those, much of the reaction or much of the sprouting of these uh, these kinds of, of, of movements and then they link to become paramilitary movements as well, is basically incubated at the grassroots in Africa, particularly whether it's a response to the to the state or whether it's a response to a broader issue, etc. And they become incubated at that level. Whether or not we're going to see a greater military presence in Africa from external forces, I think it, it depends again in terms of what alignment happens between the UN Security Council and the AU, uh, particularly because the AU in itself has got this Africa 2063 vision, and part of that Africa 2063 vision, if you listen to the, the talk uh, by the one of the political councillors, is that it wants to get rid of these of these kinds of uh, intra-state intra, uh, conflict and, and interstate instability uh, that crosses over borders and, and, and boundaries. And the challenge, I think, is especially where there's economic interest, how are you going to basically safeguard those economic interests, but more importantly, how are you going to safeguard your own, uh, create more, more stability? One of the challenges Nigeria has as a result of Boko Haram is the level of instability that they now see in the state in terms of trying to deal with it. Though, would we see the response, as we've seen the U.S. also assisting, etc., would we see the response of other countries coming in to assist in that way? 
I think they pose a risk for countries like China because, yes, you're right on the one hand, they have a big deployment. But I think China, it'll be a while before China decides to deploy outside of the UN space. Uh, it always wants to be part of that UN space. But in terms of the naval capacity, it'll be interesting to unpack what informs those, those discussions around the naval base in Namibia. Sanusha Naidu is a research associate in the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria and also a project manager at FAHAMU's Emerging Powers Program. Uh, thank you so much, Sanusha, for joining us again. Obviously, we never have enough time when we talk with you, but it's just so fascinating. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And I really if, enjoyed it. If people want to stay on top of what your latest projects are and then some of the things that you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Um, through my email, uh, which you have, which you can let uh, 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 allow people to have yes, access to Twitter. And then also, uh, if people want to follow what's going on on Africa and the emerging powers, Fahamu has a, a newsletter, which you can then also share and people can subscribe to it. Oh, fantastic. And Kobus, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I, I put my name in brackets when I when I respond to to, um, to members. And also I'm on Twitter at Stadnesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me over at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, over on Twitter. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa stories almost every day. And, of course, I'm with Cobus on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, if you'd like to listen to our show on the go, we've got mobile apps for both iOS and Android. So you can just go to our, web, our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com, give a click on the main banner there, and it'll take you to, to the download links uh, that you can find us there. And, of course, if you want to listen to the podcast uh, on iTunes, just go to China Africa Project, search for us, and we'll come up. And uh, we would be great, and we'd be so grateful if you could leave a comment for us, good, bad, or ugly, that's okay. Uh, but just it helps people find our, our podcast and move us up in the Apple ecosystem. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>